0: know, if we were to survey the average person on the street, I'm sure that we would learn that most, with only a few exceptions, of the people out there don't want to die. I think that's probably the case with all of you. We want to live. And while sometimes people say, well, I don't want to live forever, they just don't want to die, which essentially means that they want to live forever. They want eternal life. And that's what God offers to us, is eternal life. It's a wonderful and uh, incredible gift that we can't even hardly comprehend, that God would give us the opportunity to live forever in His kingdom. That's our hope. That's my hope. That's your hope, eternal life in the kingdom of God. But Revelation, the 21st chapter in verse 8, tells us that not everyone is going to be in the kingdom of God. Among those that are left out are unbelievers, murderers, people who are sexually immoral, sorcerers, and that word comes from pharmakeia, which may have to do with the recreational drug use that we have in our world today, idolaters, and all liars. Now the verse goes on to say that all of these categories of people will be thrown into a lake of fire and burned up, thus ending any potential for eternal life. But I've left out one category that John recorded in this verse. And many of you know which one that is. You probably are familiar enough with it that you think you've got it figured out, and you probably do. But let's turn over there to Revelation, the 21st chapter, and verse 8. And we're going to notice one category that I left out in reading this list. It says, But the cowardly, the very first thing, was left out the cowardly unbelieving abominable murderers sexually immoral sorcerers idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire or the lake which burns with fire and brimstone which is the second death so here it tells us that the cowardly are going to be left out and i think that sometimes people think that well cowardly we we're all you know cowards in some way and we think that, well, why would God exclude those people just because they are afraid? Well, it doesn't really say fearful, because a lot of people are feel fearful. We read of Moses when he was at Mount Sinai; there said his, you know, he he, he shaked or quaked. Uh, uh, I forget exactly the wording there, but he was he was uh, very frightened at that situation when the noise of the trumpet grew louder and louder and the the ground was shaking underneath and there was this great pyrotechnic display that was taking place there on the mountain. And Moses was terrified by it. But Moses wasn't cowardly. He wasn't so fearful that he was afraid to act or to react. The opposite of cowardice is courage. Courage to do something even though you may be fearful, you overcome that fear by doing what is needful to be done. And it's evident from many scriptures that God loves one category, but hates the other. God loves the courageous. He does not love the cowardly. Now, I I suppose you could parse those words, love, cowardly. You could say it any way you want to. God loves all people, but it also says that God loved Jacob and hated Esau. He loved less. God does not want us to be cowardly. That's the point that I'm trying to make here. He loves the courageous. And so in today's sermon, we're going to see why God condemns the cowardly, but loves the the courageous. And we're also going to see that courage is something that each one of us needs as we move forward in today's perverse world. I think we're coming up to the time very shortly when each of us is going to have to display courage to a degree that we may never have imagined. Because one thing that you think, okay, times can get rough and this sort of thing, but when you're actually there on the spot with problems, it takes courage to overcome. And we practice courage on a day-to-day basis. When you take off from work and your boss says that I'll fire you if you take off that day, that's displaying courage. And we do that all the time. But we're coming to a time in the future that this world is going to change so much that we're going to have a hard time dealing with it. We're going to have to display a kind of courage that we've never had to display in most of our lives today. Uh, let's look at a couple of parables. Luke, the 19th chapter, first of all. Luke 19 and verse 20. And these are very familiar parables. This one is the parable of the minas. And we often refer to the one whose mina gained 10 or gained 5. And sometimes we just stop because we don't want to take the time to go on. But let's notice verse 20. Then another came saying, Master, here is your mina which I have kept, put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you because you are an austere man. Notice he says, I feared you because you are an austere man. Now we know this is a parable, that it wasn't something that actually happened there, but uh, it's, it's giving a sense that there are those who are fearful, and so instead of doing something... They just sit on their mina, the unit you know, of money that is given to them. Sit on God's spirit, whatever uh, we want to to substitute there. It says, which I have kept, put away in a handkerchief, for I feared you because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. So when someone is fearful to the point of not acting. And that's the point. It's not a matter of being fearful. It's a matter of being fearful to not act upon the commission that you've been given. He says, I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then do you you not put my money in the bank that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. Now, we don't often think of this in terms of courage or uh, fearfulness, but this is what, what we have here. This is what Jesus said, that the man said, well, I'm fearful, I, 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 I was afraid to do anything with what you gave me. God has given you and He's given me opportunities. And He expects us to use those opportunities to serve Him and to grow and develop holy and righteous character. But if we sit on it because we're afraid of making a mistake... Or whatever other reason, uh, laziness, then God is not pleased with that. In Matthew, the 25th chapter, Matthew 25, similar uh, parable, but slightly different. <clears throat> and again, I won't read the first part of it. Uh, just getting down to the, uh, the individual who uh, refused to do what he was supposed to do. Uh, Matthew 25, 24. says, then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid. Here again, he said, I was afraid. But it's what he did when he was afraid. Others might have been afraid, but they did something. But in this case, he was afraid and went and hid your talent on the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. I've preserved it carefully. So... The individual is thinking, well, I did what I was supposed to do. I took care of your talent that you had given, a talent being a unit of money. He says, there you have it. But his Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I did not scatter seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. So something very similar there. And he was to take the talent away from or they were to give it to someone else. Now when you study those parables there's there's a little bit of difference there in terms of the, the lead up to it but the bottom line is the one who sits on his talent his mina and does nothing because he is fearful to do so is going to be it's going to be taken away and he's going to be cast out Now those are parables but let's look at a real life example of an individual who apparently was fearful of the wrong a thing to be fearful of, and made a very bad mistake. Let's go back to Exodus, the 32nd chapter. And as soon as I say that, you probably have that one figured out. Exodus 32. And we'll begin in verse 1. It says, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that we shall go before us, that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. And all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears, and they brought them to Aaron. Now, we we know that not everything is stated here that went on. They didn't just probably come and say, Hey, Aaron, we'd like to have a god here, a calf or something. But there was something, obviously, that took place there. And we can surmise, we can read between the lines, that there must have been a lot of pressure being put on Aaron. He didn't just immediately uh, go out and do it in the sense that there was no pressure, there was no uh, conflict that, that would have taken place there. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool, made a golden calf. Then they said, this, then he, they said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow is a feast to the eternal. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and to drink, and rose up to play. And the rising up to play, that was obviously uh, quite a celebration, dancing that was no doubt uh, inappropriate type of dancing, no doubt some very lewd dancing. We get that impression that uh, this was more of a licentious uh, experience that was going on there. But let's skip down to verse 19, after Moses comes down off the mountain. It says, so it was, as soon as he came near the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing. So Moses' anger became hot, and he cast the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Then he took the calf which they had made, burned it in the fire, and ground it to powder, and he scattered it on the water and made the children of Israel drink it. Now it was gold, and he wasn't concerned about the value of it. He didn't just melt it down and make something else out of it, he He destroyed it. He got rid of it. As much as you can destroy gold, it would have been there. If anybody knows where that stream is, there might be a lot of gold there, but I wouldn't suggest that you go there. Uh, That's probably not the source of gold that we want to have. But Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? Moses understood that they must have done something. There must have been some sort of pressure that was being put upon Moses on Aaron. He said, What did they do to you? And Aaron said, well, well do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. Uh, Moses was probably very hot at that point in time. Uh, I, I would think that, uh, you know, he's, he's saying, you know, don't, don't, let, don't get too excited here about this. You know the people that they are set on evil. You know what they're like. For they said to me, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Well, it was kind of your fault because you did take a long time before you came down. And I said to them, well, whoever has gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me and I cast it in the fire. And the, the most ridiculous statement that's ever been made, I suppose. And this calf came out. It just jumped out. Now, you know, it shows the degree that human nature will justify itself. But when you look at this incident, you have to believe that there was pressure that was being put upon Aaron by the people. And instead of doing what was right, his first reaction may have been that, no, no, we don't want to do anything like that. But as pressure was put on him, he finally gave in. It may not have taken very long to give in, but he I think we can surmise that there must have been quite a bit of pressure that was put on him at that point in time and aaron rather than obeying god and fighting the crowd he just simply gave in now when you think about it we do that from time to time don't we we give in to pressure i uh, i may have given this before and i apologize to the ladies because you're going to take it personally and uh, it's, it's actually, I'm going to talk about the men in this, the fault of the men, but it's my favorite Dr. Laura quote. Everybody knows Dr. Laura, I suppose. She's on the radio. And my, mother, my, my wife is already rolling her eyes here. You've heard this a time or two. But a man called in and he said uh, there was a problem in the family. And he ended the conversation by saying, I'm just trying to keep peace in the family. And her response was, that peace is not your responsibility. Leadership is. And then she went on to say, as long as there's a woman around, there will be no peace. Complete capitulation or even death will not bring it about. I know. I am one. Now, I'm sorry, ladies. That's what she said. That was a woman that said that. But the point I want to focus in on, because she wasn't slamming women, she was slamming both men and women. She was saying to men, your responsibility isn't just keeping peace, your responsibility is leadership. Now think of Adam and Eve. Why did Adam, who was not deceived, eat of the fruit? I surmise only two reasons. One is she used her feminine wiles, or there was going to be no peace in that household until he did and it might have been a combination of the two but adam knew better didn't he but he went ahead and did it and oftentimes that's what we we do this is the case of aaron no doubt aaron wanted peace he didn't want to fight those people there he didn't want to he may have thought he was going to lose his life who knows what he thought at that point in time they came to him they said Oh, this this Moses, he's gone off. What are we going to do? As with Aaron, men will often give in just to have peace. Husbands and fathers need to exercise the courage of leadership. Husbands need to take the lead in their families. This does not mean they should be dictatorial. They should not be controlling, control freaks as we sometimes say. You know, some men are very controlling because they're selfish and they just want it their way. Others are insecure and fearful of losing control. And so they become very controlling. One of the problems we had, I think, earlier years in the church, more than more than I've I've noticed in more recent years, but a lot of young men they would hear sermons about the man is supposed to be the leader, and so they would let their wives know that they are in charge and They tell them when they could uh, go to the bathroom and when they could get up, when they had to go to bed, and all kinds of things like that. That's not that's not leadership. That's tyranny. And we don't want our young young men or old men, any men, to be that uh, that particular way. But on the other hand, this does not mean that we should always just be pleasing and peaceful. I'm not talking about making war, but there are times you just have to make decisions that are not going to be popular. There are some decisions that will not be popular. And in the household, this is this, uh, a situation that comes up all the time. And oftentimes it is for the father to make the tough decision, although there are some women that end up having to make the tough decisions because their husbands won't. But there are times to say, no, I remember... Uh, over at somebody's house one time, and I, I so admired this this individual just the way he spoke. Uh, he uh, he was uh, his daughter had come in and she wanted to go someplace, and he he said, "No, I don't think so." He just said no. I thought, "Wow." He just said no. That's the way that sometimes it has to be, because fathers want to protect their daughters and their sons. And so sometimes you have to say no when it would be so easy to to give in. I've had times when I've had people come up to me and ask me about something on the Sabbath. For example, can I play in a concert on the Sabbath, Friday night? And when I was younger, I, I can remember several occasions where this happened, where somebody came up and said, well, they, they had this situation. And I'd think, well, you know, you don't want to say no. You don't want to be the bad guy. And then eventually I'd say, well, what do you think? And they say, well, I don't think I should. And I realized they were playing me for a sucker, that individual was. He was trying to get papal permission from me, papal dispensation. As though if I said yes, it would be okay. Well, he knew it was going to be wrong. But sometimes we try to please when we just need to be principled. And say the truth fearlessly and let the chips fall where they may. We can be nice about things, but we need to be principled and we need to know what the truth is. And we need to live by that truth and not be fearful of what people are going to think about those things. So the problem that we have is that some people are controlling in a wrong way in leadership. And you have others that are simply weak and cowardly which is not what we want. The problem is that with all of this, we generally cannot see ourselves in the category that we're in. The problem when you bring these things out is that the person who's controlling thinks that he needs to be more controlling, and the person that is weak thinks that he's been too controlling and he wants to be weak. I... I, that's the way I've seen it over the years. Somebody gives a sermon and they give you know one side or the other, and and afterward you get talking with people and you find that they, they saw it just the opposite of what it should have been. If they tend to be controlling, then they think that oh I I've, I've been too weak. I need to be stronger. Or the other way around. Oh I've just been too harsh. But we need to exercise leadership, and leadership takes courage, and courage means that you're willing to. Uh, you know, you're secure enough that you're not going to be controlling, but at the same time, uh, you're courageous enough that you're willing to step in and say no when that is necessary. In Ezra, the 10th the chapter, there's a very interesting uh, situation here. It actually starts in the ninth chapter, uh, but I'm, I'm going to skip over the ninth chapter. The, the problem was that they were marrying outside of, of Israel. And we find that. uh, In fact, I'll just read this in chapter 9, verse 2. Uh, They've taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons so that the holy seed is mixed with the people of those lands. And and notice this so often happens. It says, indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. That's a sad commentary on on ancient Israel, and uh, it, it shouldn't be that way. Then in chapter 10, it says, Now while Ezra was praying and while he was confessing, weeping and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept very bitterly. They had brought this problem to him. He had only been there a short time. They brought this problem up. They had come out of captivity. They saw themselves doing things, making decisions that were not the right decisions They themselves, they saw their their nation doing that, and they were very concerned about it. And Shechaniah, the son of uh, Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, We have trespassed against our God and have taken pagan wives from the people of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. Now therefore, verse 3, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and those who have been born to them. So they were going to put away not only the wives, but the children themselves. Now think about what this would be like. This would not be an easy decision. Think about it if you know it, it became clear that you'd made a mistake in some way and that you were going to have to put away your wife and your children. That was a pretty traumatic event in the nation. It's not something we're going to face in quite the same way ourselves, I'm sure. We're not going to suddenly go out here and say, well, we don't like who you're marrying, so we're going to make you separate. That, that would be ridiculous. But there was a reason in Israel at that time, and Judah specifically, because they were marrying outside of the, the nation. Their culture was being overthrown and destroyed. And they had violated God's law concerning this, where God had been very clear about it. And so it says, therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away these, all these wives and those who have been born to them, the the children as well, according to the advice of my Master, and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. So, the law of God was what was important here and let it be done according to the commandment. Arise verse 4, for this matter is your responsibility. He said to Ezra, this is your responsibility. This is what you have to do. We also are with you, be of good courage and do it. So every one of us in our whatever our particular area of life might be, there's a time when it becomes your responsibility. As a husband, as a mother, whatever the situation might be, there comes a time when that responsibility becomes yours. And what's helpful here is that these individuals were standing behind Ezra, and they said, be of good courage and do it. Sometimes there's something that you might have to do in your life, in your family, to straighten out a situation. It takes courage, doesn't it? In Acts the 5th chapter, Acts 5, we see that the the apostles had to make a rather tough decision. And we look back and we think, well, that would have been easy. I don't think any of these things would have been nearly as easy as we like to think they might be. But here in Acts the 5th chapter, verse 29, it says, But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. They were told that they weren't to preach the gospel anymore. You know, we're going to be told, or maybe not told, we're going to have the gospel being shut down in this world. The doors are going to close, at least to whatever God allows. We know that no man can shut a door that God has opened if God wants to keep it open. But the fact of the matter is that God has always allowed persecution to come upon His people. And we're coming to a time when that persecution is going to be on our doorstep. And it's just about there. And if we can't see that, our eyes are not very open. Because our world is changing radically. And it's changing rapidly. As I've said before, maybe even here, there was a time... 40 years ago where I couldn't understand how the church could be persecuted. What are they going to say? Eat pork and die? Or eat pork and don't die? If you don't eat pork, you'll die? But today we've got a different world. world where not only you and I, but others are being put down for what we believe and shut down. In Australia, we've had several programs that were censored of recent date. We have programs in the United Kingdom that are censored regularly. I think that we've had a good streak of late, but there was a time where it seemed like every other or every third program was censored. Programs that would never be censored years ago. We have programs that I know I've recorded a couple of them that you wonder, will they get through? Because they're not politically correct. Are they truthful? Absolutely. But the world today doesn't care about truth. We're living in a very different world today than what we once had. Let's take a look at an example of courage. And when we think about this, I think that we we would not want to have been on the hot seat where these individuals were. It's back in the book of Numbers, the 13th chapter, Numbers 13. Put yourself in this position. There were spies that were sent into the promised land. Chapter 13, verse 1. The Lord spoke, or the Eternal spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, one a leader among them. And so Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Eternal, all of them men who were heads of their children of Israel. So these were leaders there. And then it lists all the leaders that were chosen. Then verse 16, it says, these are the names of the men who Moses sent to spy out the land. Moses called Oshea the son of Nun, Joshua or Yahshua. Then Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up this way into the south and go up to the mountains and see what the land is like, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many, whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, whether the the, uh, cities they inhabit are like camps or strongholds. Verse 20, whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are forests there or not. Notice what he says, verse 20, Be of good courage. Be of good courage, and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So they go out. They uh, Verse 21, they went up and they spied out the land uh, as they were told to do. Let's skip to verse 26. It says, Now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron, after they'd spied out the land. And all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at uh, Kadesh, They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Then they told him and said, We went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. It is a wonderful land. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified, walled cities, fortified cities, and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. So what they were saying was that, yeah, it's a good land, but we better leave it alone. We don't want to go in there because we don't have a chance against these people. We're just a ragtag bunch of people coming out of Egypt, former slaves. We're not warriors. And we're expected to go against walled cities, fortified cities, large cities with good populations to fight against us, who prepared for war and so forth. But then in verse 30, Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, "'Let us go up at once and take possession.'" for we are well able to overcome it. Now, you have to think, here is a situation where ten of the spies are bad-mouthing it. And you have Caleb, and we know Joshua is also in on this. And they stand up and they say, look, no, we can do this. This is ours. They're going to be our lunch. We're going to eat them for lunch, so to speak. They're our bread, as he points out here. We're able to go up against the people, for they are strong. Uh, uh, but the men, I'm sorry, we're able to overcome it. Then verse 31, but the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. Therefore, we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak, which came from the giants. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. So Joshua and Caleb, as we we know from the story, saw the same thing they did. They saw these giants that they were going to have to go up against. And they were willing to go into the land and to fight for it. They were willing to obey God's command and to overcome as God showed them later on that they would overcome the city of Jericho with a miracle from God. God would do it for them and through them. They could see that, but they didn't, they didn't know exactly how God... But they just knew. They had faith, didn't they? But they also had courage. But you know what else they had courage for? It was to go against the crowd. To stand up, Against all the others, because not only the ten, but now those ten have stirred up the people. And so you've got this giant mob, mass of Israelites that are complaining in their tents and talking back and forth. And we don't, again, we just have a little bit of the story here, but they had the whole nation in an uproar ready to go back to Egypt instead of going forward. And Joshua and Caleb we're able to stand up before the whole mass of people and say, no, this is what we ought to do. It'd be like if you were standing up where I am right now with 260 people or thereabouts as we have here. And you were standing up and all of the people are jeering and shouting and, you know, they're, they're about ready to stone you. Well, imagine a couple million people, two, three million people. And those two men standing up against them, I guess with Moses and Aaron at this point, of course. Chapter 14, so all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in the wilderness. Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and children should become victims? It's always interesting that people never claim that that it's because it hurts them. In other words, I'm not fearful. I'd go up and fight, but our women and children—they're going to kill our women and children. It says, "Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt?" So they said to one another, "Let us select a leader and return to Egypt." This was a general insurrection. It was a mob that was going up against them. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. But Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, The land we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, then He will bring us into this land and give it to us a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Eternal, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. They're our lunch. We're going to eat their lunch, so to speak. An expression sometimes used. Especially in sports. We'll eat their lunch. Their protection has departed from them, and the eternal's with us. Do not fear them. Now, this is an incredible example of courage. Courage to be willing to go up and fight those giants in those fortified cities, but also, more immediately, to stand up against the crowd. How often do we stand up against the crowd? How often do we just shrink? are unwilling to say something. I don't mean that we should go out and every time we disagree with somebody, stand up and make an obnoxious bore of ourselves. I don't mean that. But there are times when we should stand up. I remember one of our members was taking a class, a uh, university-level class. And the question was asked, uh, what's a family? Uh, is a man and a wife, a man and a woman, and two children, is that a family? Everybody raised their hand. About thirty-five in the class. Or what if it's just a a husband or a man and a wife? Is that a family? Everybody raising their hands. Or what if it's a, a woman, a widow, and her dog? Is that a family? And everybody raised their hand except our member. And. Instructor called on her. Oh, you don't think that's a family? See, this is what goes on in classes. This is what our children face as they go forward, and we'll face it even more so. And she said, no, I don't think that's a family. It's a dog. It's not a human being. A family involves human beings. And then she said, well, what about, that's the class, what about two women or two men? Is that a family? Well, all the, the fearful ones raised their hands. They don't want to stand out. Yeah, that's a family, except our member. Now, she was getting a little bit nervous at this point, And uh, she didn't raise her hand. And so the, the instructor said, uh, re- called on her again. He said, no, I don't think that's a family. A family involves a man and a woman. Two women is not a family. Two men is not a family. And then the instructor said uh, to the whole class, now see, students, this is what we're going to have to face, what you're going to have to face. There are people out there like this this woman who are, you know, Catholics, and she, she went on about that, and so she raised her hand and she said, I'm not Catholic. But she was being put on the spot. I was talking to a young man in Belgium uh, last summer, you year ago, Approximately a year ago. And I just asked the question, what is it like in the classroom these days when some of these subjects come up? He said, if you disagree, everybody will turn around and stare at you. And they just look at you like you've got two heads. He said, outside the class, some of your friends may say that they agree, but in the class, they're going to go along with what the teacher is leading them to. You know, it takes courage, doesn't it, to disagree. It takes courage not to raise your hand when everybody else is. It takes courage to stand up against them. And this is the world in which we're living. You know, Joshua and Caleb were brave not just because they were warriors, but they were willing to stand out against the crowd. They weren't going to be intimidated by numbers. And yet, humanly speaking, that's what happens to most of us. Let's consider the challenge that we have in our rapidly changing world. We're coming to a very strange world indeed. We're all very familiar with the Charlotte City Council so-called bathroom bill. You're very familiar with that. I don't think you could live here and not know about that. You're also familiar with the fact that the governor—I didn't have internet access this morning, so I don't know. Forgot to look up his name, but I saw him in an interview, and he was willing to stand up against the uh, the uh, young woman that was interviewing him. And he even said, "I don't understand why we're having this conversation." In other words, this is so insane. That how in the world can we even talk about it? But she was very much against him, probably because she would lose her job if she weren't. You know, if you don't just celebrate these things, it's it's not enough to just accept it. You've got to celebrate them, or you would lose your job. So he stood up against it, and you have to give the governor of this state and the legislatures, uh, the legislature or the legislators a credit for the fact that they within one day were able to turn this thing around so that when you walk down to some business you don't have to worry about sending your daughter into a bathroom that uh, some individual who uh, pretends to be uh, of a certain persuasion is going to walk in there and perhaps molest your daughter or expose himself or who knows what. It's not just the individuals who are deceived about what they are, it's the others who would take advantage of it as well. But then there's the response of Bruce Springsteen, PayPal, and other individual and corporate giants. Cowards, every one of them. Hypocrites, every one of them. Because they'll do business in places like Saudi Arabia and elsewhere where all these things are condemned Or other states that have quietly made these rules. But they're very selective. But they don't want to lose business. You know, two can play that game. And there are those who have decided they're not going to shop at Target, for example. Over a million people, signatures I guess, have already said they're not going to shop at Target anymore. I'm not trying to advocate one way or the other here in that context because target has said that all of their washrooms are open to anybody who wants to to use them let's hope the north carolina governor and legislature legislators don't back down as other governors have in the face of corporate pressure i want to i i use this in a telecast probably never see the light of day the telecast other than our internet site Guidelines for best practices. So I know if some of you have seen this. Guidelines for best practices, uh, because of the television studio for sure. I like to just read this. This was put out in January, the middle of January, about January fifteenth of this year. Uh, in Alberta, Alberta. That's where Calgary. That's where Edmonton are. That's where this fire is in uh, uh, Fort McMurray. Which, by the way, if you, that is a much bigger deal than people realize, because Fort McMurray is the heart of the oil sands, a heart of the, uh, uh, the oil industry in Canada that has really held up the economy to a great degree. And until recent years, people were driving three or four hours to work every day because there wasn't enough housing in Fort McMurray. Now there may be no housing in Fort McMurray. So even if it doesn't touch the oil sands directly in the refineries, it, it shuts it down because people have no way to get to work without driving long, long distances each way. It's a big deal. It's no small thing up there. But I'd like to read a little bit. Maybe this is a little bit why some things are beginning to happen. I say maybe because we don't want to overreact and every time something happens say that it's a fulfillment of prophecy. But what this is, these are guidelines that came out in January, middle of January, that were to be implemented by the end of March in public, private, parochial, all schools, charter schools, every school in Alberta. They were to implement these policies. And just as kind of a little background here, it says, School authorities are expected to develop policies, regulations, and procedures that are consistent with provincial legislation and policies. It's important that these policies, regulations, and procedures explicitly address the authorities, the school's responsibility as it relates to students and staff who identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, footnote, two-spirit, queer, questioning, and or gender diverse and reflect the best practices as outlined in these guidelines. Now, there's a little footnote for trans. So let's see what that says. Some individuals identify with terms such as transgender, transsexual, gender-fluid, gender-diverse, and agender. We have chosen to use the word trans in these guidelines as an inclusive, continually evolving, think about that, continually evolving, umbrella term commonly used to describe individuals whose gender identity and gender expression differ in some way from the sex they were assigned at birth. While we recognize this umbrella term may not fit for everyone, our intention is to be as inclusive as possible. Now, this says continually evolving, and I say, you know, these people have very fertile minds. What are they going to come up with? Dr. Merris' latest coworker letter. Sologamy. I marry myself. Now, we had a little bit of fun of that in the office, except it's not very funny in a way. But how did this woman that... Was being described there have 40 friends that would actually come to see her marry herself. Unless they were just curious to see how this is going to work. It's a wonder that someone so unbalanced could possibly have that many friends. And what is she going to do when she decides to divorce herself? How's that going to work? And what if she meets somebody and decides to marry that person? Will she have to then divorce and then marry that person? I mean, what else are these people going to come up with? I think they've covered all bases, but I doubt it. I really doubt it. Let me just read a little bit more here. Because remember, this has to be implemented. And here's a chilling statement. Self-identification is the sole measure. Of an individual's sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression, whatever the individual thinks, forget what his parents think because you're not even allowed to tell the parents what goes on at the schools that's part of it. Whatever that individual thinks is what he or she is now there's a term for this, and i I, I didn't have the article in front of me so i couldn't and i couldn't find it but I uh, couldn't log on to it there's a term for people who have an identity crisis where they, they see themselves one way when in reality they're something else. So if a boy is anatomically a boy, but he sees himself as a girl, we think that we should cater to that and, oh, okay, yes, you ought to be a girl. Would we ever do that with anorexia? It's exactly the same type of a problem. It has to do with the self-identity problem. There's a term for it. Psychologists point this out that this is, uh, we, we should not be giving into this because the science is not on their side. I'm sure there are plenty of psychologists that go along with it, but some very famous ones have testified against it and said this is a very bad idea. Would we say to someone who's anorexic and is, is wasting away that yeah, you are fat? You need, to, you need to lose some more weight. We're doing that to children. I say we. That's being done to children because as you can begin to imagine, some of these zealous school teachers, especially some that are of various persuasions, if somebody even hints that they think that there's something, oh, well, we need to explore that. They can change their school records. The children can they can walk into a change room of their choice. So Johnny thinks he's Jane. Goes in the girls' locker room. Some individuals may not feel included in the use of the pronouns he or she, and may prefer alternate, alternate uh, pronouns such as Z E. I'm sorry, Z E. Lived in Canada and England too long here. Z or Z, whichever you prefer. E instead of he or she, Z or Z I R, H I R instead of H E R, and M X instead of Mr. and Mrs. so so on and so forth. Uh you know, this this is just madness. But it's not just here in Charlotte. It's not just here or up there in Canada. Let's take a look at the United Kingdom. Try to imagine a world populated by teenagers who are neither boys nor girls, but have three genders at once. They are male, female, and androgynous, making them trigender. Other young people are known as demi boys and demigirls. Some differ between genders in a variety of ways, some are bigender. Still more are trans girls and trans boys while yet another tribe identify themselves as gender fluid. This sounds like the stuff of science fiction. I would say sounds more like one flew over the cuckoo's nest. (laughs) In fact, every term I've just used comes from a questionnaire that the British government planned to submit to children ages 13 to 18 as part of a research project sponsored by the Department of Education via the 2.9 million pound a year office of the children 's commissioner for england that 's from mail online twenty nine january two thousand and sixteen it 's happening all over the world there's a spirit behind this and who knows koala is behind it in a physical human way God has commissioned us to be strong in this world. In Joshua, the first chapter, Joshua 1 and verses 5 through 9, you can hardly talk about courage without going to this passage. Joshua 1, verses 5 9 says, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. It's talking about Joshua who was taking over after Moses had died. And he said, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Now, that's a promise that God has given to you and to me. If we are with him, he will be with us. He says, be strong and of good courage. For to this people you shall divide as an inheritance of land which I swore to their fathers to give them. And then he says in verse 7, only be strong and very courageous. Why? Why did he tell him to be strong and courageous? Was it just because he was going to go up against a few giants? Or maybe he had to go against public opinion occasionally. He says, "...that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or the left." you may prosper wherever you go. He says, verse 8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you be strong and of good courage? Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the eternal your God is with you wherever you go. Now, this is a promise to Joshua, but God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And He will be with us as an organization, as a group, as a family. He will be with us if we are faithful to Him. And we're coming to a time in our world where it's not going to be easy. You know, the government can put a lot of pressure on us. They can cut off our tax status. Tax, you know, in terms of what would it be like if you no longer can claim your uh, your ties and your offerings as a an income tax deduction? What would it be like? What would it be like our people in England or many other parts of the world who are not able to do so. But as Americans, those of us who live here, that would be a significant financial hit, wouldn't it? They can do that. There are a lot of other things they can do. They can bring charges against individuals in the church, trumped-up charges, ridiculous charges, just to harass and make life difficult. They can take children away from families. I don't mean to scare anybody, but they can do that. There are a lot of things that are going to happen before this is over. They're not going to be very pleasant. And unlike 40 or 50 years ago, we can see how it will happen. We couldn't understand it back then. but We sure can today because of the way the world is going. Several states have passed laws to protect businesses only to back down because of the financial pressure that's being put on them. Because you see, as the governor of a state, when various companies decide to pull out and various entertainment programs begin to pull out, then you've got people who are beginning to hurt because their business is hurt. Their income is being cut. Their jobs are being lost. And when that happens, people who thought they were all for something suddenly aren't for it. But we can't change our minds. Right is right and wrong is wrong. And I I, I fear that if we ever get to the place where we back down from the truth, that's when God won't be with us. But I believe that God will be with us because I think that we have people in the church who are courageous and principled and will stand up. And I hope that we, we always do. We can't afford to back off. Ezekiel, the second chapter, Ezekiel. It is interesting that when people back off, they get run over. When they stand against the bullies, the political correct bullies, they sometimes win. Hobby Lobby stood up and they won. Uh, Robinson, Robertson, Robertson, uh, Phil Robertson was suspended from Duck Dynasty. But because he didn't back down and the family rallied behind him as we should do as a church when things happen, and as I'm convinced we will, then even the public, those who never said anything, suddenly came out of the woodwork and AMC backed down, or A&E, I guess A&E, the uh, entertainment company, had to back down you have to stand up against these bullies. In Ezekiel the 2nd chapter verse 1. Here's a commission that we've been given. He says son of man stand on your feet and I will speak to you. Then the spirit entered me and I spoke and spoke to me and sent me on my feet and I heard him who spoke to me verse 3. And he said to me son of man I am sending you to the children of Israel to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. And when you read through here, he just keeps saying they're stubborn, they're rebellious. Uh, Verse 4, he says, They're impudent and stubborn children. I'm sending you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the eternal God, as for them, whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are a rebellious house, yet they will know that a prophet has been among them. The article that Dr. Meredith wrote in the latest, uh, Tomorrow's World, uh, the one with the article on unraveling, which is a very good article by Mr. McNair, uh, showing that our world is coming unraveled. It's changing very rapidly. But the article by Dr. Meredith showing how individuals recognize this is the truth, but they're just not ready to do anything about it. I'm reminded of a a man years ago. I was giving a Tomorrow's World presentation, although we didn't call it that at the time. And I happened to say toward the end of the the, uh, program, I don't even remember what the subject was, but I I just happened to say something about Christmas being pagan. And this fellow was sitting, there was an aisle just like we have here, uh, except that uh, it's not slanted the way, you know, stairs, terraced. But anyway, he was sitting in the back, at the very back corner, And he was on the right hand side as I was looking out and suddenly his head came out in the aisle and he said, WHAT?! And he wasn't trying to be disruptive. He was shocked. And so he came up afterward and I explained that, well, just check it out for yourself. Look it up. I got a call from him later. I went out and talked to him. He said, you know, everything you said was true. He said, Christmas is of pagan origin. And we had a couple visits and then I went to a different place where he'd moved. And he said to me, you know, I know that everything that the church teaches is 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 right. But he said, I'm just having too much fun. I can't do it. You know, they're going to know that they've been warned. We've been warning of this kind of world coming for many decades. And it's coming upon us right now. A very different world than the one that we grew up in, those of us who are older. He says here in verse 5, As for them, whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are a rebellious house, yet they will know that a prophet has been among them. And then he says in verse 6, And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns are with you, and you dwell among scorpions. Do not be afraid of their words or dismayed at their looks reminds me of the young fellow in the class. And, you know, that's tough when you're 15 years of age, having to deal with that kind of peer pressure. And you have to have sympathy for our young people. And they need to be wise, but at the same time, I hope that they're willing, in the right way, when forced to do so, that they will stand tall. But I don't think they should go out of their way to create problems. But they shouldn't back down when confronted with the truth or error. Do not be afraid of their words or dismayed by their looks, though they are a rebellious house. And then he keeps going on and on and on about talking about the house of Israel. Not the Jews, but the house of Israel and how rebellious we are. In Acts, the 28th chapter, Acts 28, here the Apostle Paul is They're going to Rome. And in verse 15, it says, And from there, when the brethren heard about us, they came to meet us as far as Appiae Forum and three inns. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. Who was it that encouraged him? The brethren. Everybody surrounding the wagons. Everybody surrounding ranks. Working together. You know, true Christianity is not for the cowardly. We've had a long run of relative peace. But that's coming to an end. And anyone who has eyes to see can see that it is coming to an end. True Christianity is for the bold and the courageous. There are so many examples of courage in the Bible that you know where, where do you start and where do you stop? Well, let, let's take a look at a few. Let's turn over to Hebrews, the 11th chapter, because we call this the faith chapter, but I think we could just as easily call it the courageous chapter or the chapter of the courageous. Notice here in um, verse 32, he says, What more shall I say? What, where do we go with all this? There are so many examples He says, What more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, of Barak, and Samson, and Jephthah, also of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Wow, when you think about it. God is going to stop the mouths of lions in a figurative sense at times for us quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Do we believe that? We should. I hope we do. But notice the next sentence in verse 35. Others were tortured. God is going to allow Some things to happen to His people down at the end of the time. They're not going to be very pleasant. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance. Why? That they might obtain a better resurrection. They see the big picture and they know what where they are. These are people who are secure in who they are and what they believe and what their hope is. And they'll obey God no matter what the consequences. Trusting that God will rescue them as the three as we call them Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they said, we know God can save us. We expect Him to. But if He doesn't, let the king know we're not going to worship your gods. He says, others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourging, yes, of chains and imprisonment. So if any of us get thrown in prison, we've got really good company right here in this book. At one time I gave a sermon on all the people that had been thrown in prison. It was surprising. I don't remember the number, but how many jailbirds we have in the Bible. <laughs> We've got really good company. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. I always think about it. sawn in two. What Was it this way or this way? Which? I don't, it really doesn't matter. It couldn't have been a very pleasant thing. Sawn in two. I mean, these people have no conscience. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth, maybe even losing their homes because of financial hardship. You know, there are people right now in the United States who are under terrible financial hardship because they didn't want to go along with a homosexual wedding, or lesbian wedding. And there's not a lot of truth being told about this. For example, the fellow out in, or the lady out in, uh, Washington, Oregon, I forget which state it is, I think it's Washington, or Oregon, it's one of those two states. And she had a flower shop and she provided flowers for this young man as he was growing up, for the prom, for all kinds of different things. She provided flowers for him. But when she found out that he wanted her to give flowers for his wedding to another fellow, she said, Look, I can't do it. They were friends. Same community. And so it was the fellow's boyfriend. I don't know what you call them. The one that was gonna quote marry him that said something, and then the state attorney general stepped in, contrary to normal practice, and filed suit against him. And now she's having to defend herself. Her business has been affected. People have picketed her her business. All kinds of terrible things have happened. We heard several examples of that at the NRB. Several examples of people suffering as a result of it. He says, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these having obtained a good testimony through faith, or we could also say through courage. I think we could use courage in this term as well, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect apart from us. And then it talks about how Christ has uh, set the, the standard for us, enduring the cross, despising the shame in chapter 12, verse 2. And then in verse 3 it says, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and notice discouraged in your souls discouraged. We don't want to lose that courage that we should have. Our world is changing rapidly and you have to be blind not to see where we're headed. The time is rapidly approaching when our courage will be sorely tested. As it tells us in Psalm 31 and verse 23, and I'll close with this, Verse 20, Psalm 31, verses 23 and 24. It says, Oh, love the Lord, or love the Eternal, all you His saints. For the Eternal preserves the faithful and fully repays the proud person. Be of good courage, and He will strengthen your heart, all you who hope in the Eternal.